Hello, and welcome to Zocalo Public Square. I'm Lisa Marginelli. I'm a senior editor at Issues in Science and Technology. We're a quarterly journal, and we're published by the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine, and also Arizona State University. We're proud to partner with Zocalo tonight, or today, to present today's conversation, How Will Robot Trucks Change American Life? Joining me to explore that question is Dr. Steve Vaselli, who recently wrote an article on automated trucking that was published in Issues. Steve is a sociologist at the University of Pennsylvania, and he studies freight transportation. His first book was called The Big Rig, Trucking and the Decline of the American Dream. And it explains how long haul trucking went from being one of the best blue collar jobs to one of the worst. More recently, he's been studying automated trucking. Steve, I'm delighted to be speaking with you and thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so, for having me, Lisa. <laughs> it's great. Um, so the first question I wanted to ask you was you started, you were actually a trucker. So tell me what it was like to be a trucker briefly and what kind of, there's many different kinds of trucks. There's short haul trucks, there's long haul trucks, there's big trucks, little trucks, package delivery trucks, gas trucks, lots of kinds of trucks. What kind of trucks did you drive and what was it like? Yeah, so, you know, it, it was a big, you know, shift from, I started out as a sociology graduate student, I was interested in, in labor, and, uh, you know, heard about satellite linked computers that were tracking truck drivers, and I just read all this management literature on, you know, how you get workers to work hard, and I thought, this is probably affecting how people are seeing the job. Um, and the way that most people get into the trucking industry is how I got into it. So, you know, I was, I wanted to do this dissertation on trucking. I decided I couldn't just, you know, um, watch trucks from the side of the highway or try to interview drivers, you know, without having a sense of what the job was like. Uh, so at that point, we still had, you know, a, a local paper in circulation. I, I picked it up, you know, found, um, found an ad for a company that was hiring in my area and, you know, submitted an application. Next thing you know, either they're busing you, uh, three or four states away to a, a, a CDL school, they call them, where you spend a couple of weeks learning to shift the thing. Um, you know, How then, many gears did it have? So this, the truck I learned on had 10 gears, which is pretty standard for the big companies that, that dominate the kind of training of new and employment of new truck drivers. Uh -huh. Almost everybody enters the industry through the long haul segment um, in what's called truckload, meaning you go kind of point to point with a full trailer full of stuff. Um, it's usually either a dry van, which just is a standard box truck. You can put just about anything in that. Like a UPS truck, your basic truck. Yeah. And then, you know, a refrigeration, you know, a reefer is basically that dry van with a refrigeration unit. Those are the two most common. And that's where most rookies start out. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's the first couple of weeks you're learning to shift and do some basic turns. And then they let you menace the public after a couple of weeks. Uh -huh. and then you spend a few more months, usually anywhere from a month and a half to two months out with a more experienced driver, um, you know, living out of the truck together and sort of really learning how the job is done. And, and then um, truck, if you do right? well, then you're ready to go out solo. Uh -huh. So that's a long haul truck that you're out for with the ex experienced driver and living in the truck. Yeah, so this would be, you know, what's a class A commercial driver's license for an articulated vehicle that's over 29,000 pounds. So the sort of typical big rig mm -hmm. you'd see out on the highway. All right, so once you were driving, what was it like? It's, it's intense. Um, you know, there's a, 
you know, definitely a few weeks, months on your own of sort of getting up to speed and becoming an efficient driver. Um, you have to get over the, the terror of, you know, operating this giant vehicle with crazy four wheelers, as they call them, kind of zooming all around. Um, and the lifestyle itself is all encompassing. So you're out on the road for two to three weeks at a time, at least. Um, you're working sometimes in excess of 100 hours a week. Uh, just your entire day, 24 hours a day is time to the loads that you're hauling. Uh, and it's exhausting. Um, so I would start out, you know, one of the things I told myself when I started was I'm not going to let this destroy my health and the health consequences of truck driving are just enormous. You're breathing diesel fuel fumes 24 hours a day. You're eating truck stop food. You can't exercise. Um, so I would start out with a whole bunch of, um, you know, frozen meals and fresh food. I happened to park my truck at the factory that like all my ancestors had worked at in Rome, New York. And my grandmother's house was right like in the shadow of the factory. And she was this great cook and she would prepare all these frozen meals and like send me off on my tour of duty, you know, with fresh food. And that would last, you know, six, seven days. I had a little refrigerator and a little stove lunchbox that could heat things up. Um, and, you know, then you'd be stuck with uh, truck stop food. So what I would do is try to hit like, you know, I'd skip a few meals and then try to hit one of the, the big buffets that actually had like a salad bar and things that resembled actual food. Like if I could, if I could identify it, you know, that was, a, that was a good starting point. Like that's a piece of chicken. That's mm -hmm. a piece of broccoli. You know, a lot of times you, you can't, you need to actually read the labels to try to figure out what the thing is supposed to be. All right. So what I want to move on, this whole conversation is going to be about automatic, automated trucking or robot trucking or driverless trucking, all the same words, uh, different words for the same thing. But what I wanted to talk to you a little bit about is, you know, we're talking about sort of doing away, well, we might be talking about with kind of doing away with this kind of trucking job. What are we potentially going to get out of this? Like, what is the rosiest scenario for society from automated trucking? Let's start with the good stuff. Yeah, so I mean, the good stuff comes from some of the bad stuff that happens in the existing industry, right? And solving some of these problems. Um, first, first of all, we have you know a lot of highway deaths that are involving trucks, and those unfortunately are on the rise. Mm -hmm. And I believe uh, 2019 we've had 5,000 highway uh, deaths because of big rigs and 139,000 injuries or something like that. I mean, I was kind of floored by. Yeah. And, and, it, and unfortunately, you know, the, those highway deaths, as we, you know, after the Great Recession, were about a thousand um, less annually than they are today. So we're, you know, high, despite all of the, you know, new technology, you know, blind spot um, alerts and forward collision avoidance and things that are starting to be adopted, we're, we're seeing, uh, you know, less safe highways. A lot of that has to do with distracted, distracted driving, certainly. So automated uh, trucking could make the roads safer? Yeah, I mean, so right now, just with the potential of sort of immediate technologies of forward collision avoidance and technologies that will, you know, prevent the truck from departing its lane, we can eliminate a lot of most of those, those really nasty fatal accidents. What, what happens in those accidents almost all the time is, you know, in the highway situation is, you know, a, a car is rear-ended by a truck. Um, now that's oftentimes not the truck's immediate fault, 
you know, cars often slam on the, get in front, slam on their brakes or something like that. But a lot of times it's because the trucker does not, you know, stop in time. Um, and, you know, it, the truck departs the lane. Sometimes it's because the driver's distracted or not paying attention um, or some, some other reason that they, um, that can be prevented. So, you know, that's probably the biggest top line benefit that especially developers are focused on. Uh, but when you look at the trucking industry and how especially these long haul jobs work, they're terribly inefficient. And if you could imagine having your biggest capital investment in that truck and rather than having it actually moving and producing sort of the service of trucking, someone's using it as a rolling motel, you know, more mm -hmm. than half of the day usually. So if you look at these big trucks at these big firms that are likely to adopt self-driving technology, most of them only actually move on the highways seven and a half to eight and a half hours a day. The rest of the time is inefficient time. And that, there are lots of reasons for that. Um, independent contracting is one of them. Delays we'll get to that later, but so, but basically there is this possibility that you could squeeze more work out of a truck. You could increase. Oh, price. absolutely. We could definitely yeah. double the productivity of a typical truck. Of a single truck. Of a single so truck. That, so that would make shipping much cheaper. We have the possibility of reducing accidents. What are the other possible benefits? Environmental? Uh, there, are, there are potential environmental benefits. Um, and, you know, certainly um, at most of the uh, scenarios for automation have at least, you know, five to 10% um, fuel economy savings. Um, you could redesign the truck to be more aerodynamic. The automated driving would be uh, more fuel efficient than a than a human driver who's not quite as good at, you know, um, figuring out how much to accelerate and, and when and how to brake. Um, mm -hmm. We could also have platooning where tr trucks can follow closer together when they're connected to one another mm -hmm. and automated, uh, which cuts down a lot on that aerodynamic drag. Um, so all of that um, could potentially, you know, reduce the, the, um, the fuel consumption of trucks. Now that's assuming that when we make all of this, you know, much cheaper, take out the human labor component and this fuel savings, that we don't increase, right, the amount of truck transportation and sort of wipe out all of those environmental benefits, which I do think is a real threat. Okay. Yeah, that's one thing I've seen is that people are talking about doubling or tripling the number of trucks on the roads by 2050 or so. So, yeah. so in order to do this, we kind of need to in order to, to move forward with driverless and robot trucking, we need to kind of have a, a plan. So the, the, when the first automated truck drove in, um, it, or first autonomous truck drove in 2016, it was in Colorado, and it drove 50,000 cans of Budweiser, right? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> without a driver from one town to another town. And then immediately everybody said, oh, you know, this is it. The truck drivers are over um, and, and we're going to move. Um, I think one of the, uh, you know, one, one of the, the headlines was self-driving trucks are going to hit us like a human driven truck. <laughs> it's like kind of weird. Um, and everybody was saying that it was, we were going to lose hundreds of thousands of, of uh, jobs a year. So here we are, it's 2021 already, um, and we haven't lost all those jobs yet. Tell me what is wrong about the timeline. Like how long is it actually gonna take before we're in this world? And then we'll talk about the sort of deeper problems with the way we deal, we talk about the trucks. 
Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of it has to do with the, the way that our markets work, right? And, and one of them is the, the market for startups and raising capital um, in, in Silicon Valley, which was, you know, what was behind that 2016, you know, demo uh, mm-hmm. of, of the, the Budweiser, which in reality, you know, it was driven out to a highway by a human driver to, to navigate the more complex driving environment. And then the highway had been essentially shut down. There were police escorts in front and behind. In fact, the Colorado um, Secretary of Transportation was in one of the following vehicles as this, you know, self-driving truck piloted itself, you know, uh, 75 miles or whatever it did. So um, it's kind of fantasy in a way, just that that it's a, actually a self-driven truck, that the future is now and that it's delivering Budweiser. Yeah, yeah. And it was, um, you know, potentially a very profitable one. Of course, um, some of your listeners may be familiar with the, the Waymo Uber lawsuit, which, which came out of that demonstration, essentially. That demonstration was, was made by Otto, which was then um, bought by Uber for $600 million. And, and there were uh, allegations of, uh, of theft of Google's technology in that, um, in that transfer. Um, so, you know, there's, there, there is a strong incentive to, um, you know, both to raise capital, sell businesses, but also recruit talent among startups to, you know, be the first to do X, Y, or Z. So we've had the first, you know, driverless truck delivery. We've had the first, you know, delivery with no human or the first trip with no human in the vehicle at all. The first coast to coast driving, right? So there's always this new sort of first right. um, that that people are are sort of looking for. Um, and in fact, you know, the technology just hasn't been there. Um, you know, the the problems of, of actually getting the truck to, you know, move from point A to point B, uh, not just you know safely, but reliably time and time, you know, time after time and cost effectively, they're much harder than, than folks anticipated. And so progress has been, you know, exaggerated and slower than anticipated. Mm -hmm. So, and what's the problem with just always talking about it? Like, you know, the technology makes the decisions, like no one's driving this, but the technology and we act like it's an automatic thing that it's going to take away jobs. Yeah, I mean, you know, the way I think about it is, you know, the, the sort of position that we put ourselves in, right, is that we're going to look into our crystal balls and sort of figure out, you know, what's, what problems are going to come out of this inevitable kind of path, right, that, that the technology will put us on, and then we'll fix those problems. That's kind of the public policy role. And we really need to take a step back and, and look seriously at how new technologies develop, right? How they're adopted. And these things are contingent on a whole number of different, you know, uh, factors. It could be maybe the strength of labor, it could be policy, et cetera. But policy is really playing a key role. And that's obvious when we look at self-driving trucks. We would not be talking about self-driving trucks right now if it had not been for DARPA, right? And for the Defense Department's interest in self-driving trucks. Um, this is, you know, technology that sits on decades of investment in computer science and sensors and, and other sorts of technologies that are vital to this that, that were made possible through public funding, uh, public funding primarily of university um, research. And I understand completely, you know, why we, why the Defense Department wanted to do that. I've had the chance to interview drivers who were moving fuel to forward operating 
bases mm -hmm. in Iraq and Afghanistan, right? Um, with the threat of IEDs, you know, these these convoys which right. were costing a hundred dollars a gallon, yeah. you know, to get diesel to a forward operating base. You know, I understand what the the public, you know, um, value of of having self-driving technology, but we're essentially looking at these threats to truckers' jobs that resulted from, you know, our tax dollars being used to solve a military problem. Um, and, and now that it's ready for potential commercialization, of course, the private sector has stepped in to try to bring these things to market and, of course, profit for themselves off of them. So um, what is, so one of the things that people said when that first truck drove was that we were about to lose uh, about 2 million trucking jobs. And one of the things that you've written about is that we don't know how many we'll lose. And one of the reasons is because actually it can be cheaper to have a human in that driver's seat. So, yeah. so tell us about how, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> tell us about how the, how, how are the decisions being made? It's not just like, okay, there's great technology where you can replace a person, we'll make more money that way. There's another, the, 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 the whole world of how the decisions on driverless trucks get made is much larger. Give us some sense of, of what's going on. Yeah, so there's some really practical on the ground sort of policy um, decisions and, and regulatory um, effects that, that we're going to see on, on the development of self-driving. So, you know, right now, one of the limitations that self-driving trucks could help us overcome is the fact that human drivers are required to take breaks every so often, right? They're only allowed to drive a total of 11 hours per day. And after every 14 hours on duty, they need to take a 10 hour break, right? And so this, you know, puts a hard stop to most truck drivers days and, you know, they, could potentially expand those days, right? I mean, those are those rules are all for safety reasons, right? Those regulations. If they could safely drive on the highway, which again is where those really dangerous, you know, fatal accidents happen, right? Um, we could expand the amount of time that those trucks are driving. So the question then is, you know, is that time going to count for as off duty for those truck drivers? Right. Let's imagine that you know the technology is good, but not so good that we can reliably put it out there without having you know the driver there overseeing it in some fashion, right? Or responsible mm -hmm. if it should encounter some environment that it can't handle. So the question becomes, you know, will that driver be allowed to be off duty? Um, will that driver still be paid for that time? Right? Mm -hmm. um, will that will that count as compensable time for things like minimum wage or even? overtime, which truckers are currently exempted from, but lots of people think they should be entitled in, to. In fact, it um, turns out over the past four years, they haven't even been able to take a 10-minute break every four hours. Yeah, so, you know, the, the work hours that, that they have are just absolutely tremendous. And the, the pressure to drive once you have a load, you know, that, that needs to get you know, somewhere is is tremendous. And and part of the story of technology in the trucking industry is kind of taking away that autonomy of drivers mm -hmm. where, you know, you used to have a load going somewhere and it was either a very patterned run that the driver did regularly and was at home at night, or you'd say, okay, here's this load, it's going to some place and the driver would decide, you know, how to get there, how to break up the driving, things like that. And they were relatively unmonitored. 
Um, today with satellite linked computers, managers can you know, and two way texting can can see right where that truck is, what, what its speed, right, estimated time of arrival, and then coach the driver or manage them, direct them as they're performing the work. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there's a lot of pressure that technology has put on drivers to produce, you know, more and more miles in less and less time. I mean, one of the things that's interesting is that, you know, when, when we read about, you know, a truck taking 50,000 cans of Budweiser that's undriven, you think like, oh, that's a total shift from today, um, where it's just drivers in trucks driving, you know, by themselves. But in fact, um, it seems like over the past 30 or 40 years, actually, the cockpit of the truck has really been transformed by technology. Like there's a lot of other sorts, there's GPS is, is, is governing them. They're um, contractors or, or uh, the, I don't know if it's the owners of the truck or the owners of the load can kind of control them. There's a, just, a, it's really a very different sort of setup. Yeah, and this is, I mean, if anyone, you know, is confused about why truckers are so concerned about this technology, right? Um, from, from a driver's perspective, you know, there has been tremendous technological change over the last few decades. And for them, the idea that self-driving trucks are gonna result in some sort of upskilling of the job and suddenly it's gonna become more attractive to young people and things like, like that does not ring true to truck drivers because essentially the, you know, we've seen 40 years of technology de-skilling the job and making it worse, right? So. Now the experienced valued truck driver who, you know, is just really good at operating that truck safely and conscientious and good at planning their work and knows the roads is in competition with a brand new worker who doesn't have to read a map, right? I mean, you don't even have to read a map anymore. Um, the trucks are now often automated rather than manual. So it, it shifts itself, which isn't right. the sexiest form of automation, but it's a really important yes. form of automation. Yeah. Um, so all of these have driven down wages, right? Increased the monitoring and surveillance of drivers, and then the pressure from managers to, to push them, you know, to, to produce more and more miles. And so as this whole technology has come in, what's happened to driver's pay? Drivers, so, you know, in the 1970s, the typical truck driver was earning in today's dollars over $100,000 a year. Um, now, some may say, okay, you know, that, that's too much money for a truck driver. How could a truck driver earn that much? You know, they have to be away from their family for weeks at a time. They work the equivalent of at least two full-time jobs, right? Um, today, the typical truck driver, especially at these big companies, will make somewhere between 35 and 45,000 in their first year, right? Um, probably something around 45,000 in their second year. Um, so when you look at the fact that they're, they're working 80, 90 hours a week sometimes. Um, it's essentially a minimum wage job. When it used to pay better than being a unionized auto worker or steel worker, the Teamsters, you know, which had organized the, the industry, they brought home, you know, really good wages, benefits, and job security for truckers. Um, that was before the industry was deregulated in 1980. Okay. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And also, I mean, truckers used to be considered like a very cool job. They there were all these CB radio country songs. Um, so basically, um, what you're saying is that all of these sort of the way that technology has rolled out into the trucking industry 
where it's put most of the burden on the drivers or it's taken, it's basically taken money and time and decision-making away from the drivers and kept it for the companies. <clears throat> but if we, if, if, if I connect the dots, where do I end up with, with automated trucking? What's the, you know, what's the end scenario if we keep going in the same path? Yeah, well, right now we have, at least for the, in the with the Trump administration, we've, we've seen a, 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 you know, a DOT that a federal DOT and, and many- Department state, of Transportation, yeah. Yes, and, and many state departments of transportation that are, you know, um, looking to, to smooth the path of self-driving trucks without restriction. Um, again, taking that kind of hands-off approach that says, well, there's gotta be some one best way for this technology to develop. Let's just get out of the way of the people who are gonna make this happen and then we'll fix whatever um, problems are, are created there. Um, so if we're going to take some other approach to that, right, um, I think we have to figure out where we want to end up, right? So mm -hmm. if we want to have high quality trucking jobs, if we want to have the most efficient, um, you know, trucking industry that we they can and the safest, mm -hmm. I think we've got to kind of set that endpoint, right? We've got to we've got to say, you know, here are the goals. How does this technology? How would this technology help us meet them? Right? Um, how do we incentivize these these outcomes? And so, you know, I think there are a number of different ways that that could happen. Um, you know, one of which might be that so, autopilot, right? Where the, mm -hmm. the autopilot scenario I describe in the um, in the piece in issues in which you know the driver's unpaid, the the time that the truck's driving itself doesn't count for hours of service, on and on. And what that truck looks like is. Kind of a jack of all trades in terms of like its efficiency driving around the city and then on the highway it's not very fuel efficient in either of them right and the drivers sort of resting in the back unpaid and and de-skilled right because now you don't have to worry about those high-speed accidents that's one way that it could play out or we okay could so have... let me just stop you right there so what you're talking about is you're talking about a truck that starts at the depot the driver gets in the seat drives it out of the depot and up onto the highway then goes to the back flies down, isn't paid for that time that they're riding. The truck, the truck takes over, it drives to Nashville or whatever, gets, gets to the uh, exit, the driver gets back in and drives it off. And then this is, um, you know, just like, it's really lonely. It's hours and hours alone on the road. Maybe, maybe you can play games in the back, but it's still not particularly fun or healthy. You're away from your family. The pay is presumably pretty terrible. Um, if they're not paying for the time that the driver's riding. Um, yeah. But that's all sort of enabled by the current program of how we compensate drivers. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so, you know, this is, again, once you take those high-speed accidents out of the equation, which is one of the big, you know, benefits of having an experienced driver, you can even further de-skill those drivers. So, you know, then are we as concerned whether the driver can pass drug tests or do other sorts of things or has you know, speeding violations or is a safe driver? No, you know, so we're gonna open up the pool to drivers who are less and less safe because the consequences of them being less safe, right, are, are the, the technologies, you know, taking care of that. So it's a, it's a further de-skilling of, of the job. Okay. Um, so that thing might roll, you know, 20 hours a day, right? Mm -hmm. um, so if you wanted to electrify this industry, right, which is a big, uh, priority of the Biden administration, right? State of California is working on it as well. Mm -hmm. um, if we want to 
electrify heavy duty trucks, which are bar, by far the largest, you know, um, group of, of, of um, uh, consumers of, of diesel, right, right. Uh, per unit. And they also have terrible emissions, so it would, it would be huge. Yeah, so, so if you want to electrify those trucks, if that's part of the broader, you know, vision of where we want to be, um, the idea that, you know, these things are going to roll nonstop to all sorts of random locations like they do today, you know, where's the charging infrastructure? Where's the time to charge these things, right? So that, that decision, right, to, to not count the work time or to not compensate that work time, right, actually may have a really big impact on whether or not we can electrify the industry. Um, okay. so that's where we want to have those, that, that broader vision of, of the multiple goals we want to achieve in mind as we shape this policy. So in other words, like don't get dazzled by the amazingness of getting all the diesel exhaust off the highways or changing the greenhouse gas profile of trucking or enabling yourself to you know, get three times as much stuff delivered um, without really thinking about what this does to jobs. And, and it, is, it is also the possibility that by uh, paying more attention to these kind of regulatory decisions, we could really dramatically shape the kinds of jobs that come out of this. Is that true? Yeah, ab absolutely. So, you know, one of the, another scenario would be that we, we segment this, this drive, these, these trips, right? So that we can focus on the technology that's most appropriate in each, each segment of it. So we might have a local truck that's mm -hmm. driven by a human being and is electric, right? Um, that goes out to an interstate exit swaps its trailer for a self-driving truck. Mm -hmm. um, now maybe that, once we have the capability, maybe that truck drives itself without a driver in it, or maybe there's a, a truck with a human being in it and then a drone unit, right? That's following that, um, that human driven truck. And then we can specialize that truck. Maybe it's still burning diesel for a while because of the, the cost and, and weight mm -hmm. of electric batteries. Um, but maybe it's geared for highway high-speed travel, and maybe it's super aerodynamic, right? Um, we know that with off-the-shelf technology, we could double fuel efficiency in that segment of, of driving, uh -huh. that driving environment right now. Um, but since the truck needs to operate in both currently, right, that stuff doesn't get adopted. Mm -hmm. So we could deliberately segment these things. I call them autonomous truck ports. They would be these spots outside of cities mm -hmm. um, where we would, you know, maybe we'd use it for congestion pricing or diesel free zones, right? To prevent diesel emissions from, you know, harming communities of color, which suffer most from, you know, this, this air pollution currently, right? And so we'd have a, a place for electric charging stations, right? That infrastructure for electric charging, um, and we'd be able to incentivize the investment in the best technology for each segment on either side of that. And we could also do off-peak delivery and keep those trucks out of the rush hour, et cetera. Um, so that's the kind of vision, not saying that's the only one that would work or that necessarily even the best one, but that's the kind of global vision that I think we should be thinking about as we shape these policies. Hmm. So it's interesting because we always, uh, you know, as with Facebook, we, we let things happen and then we kind of regulate afterwards. <laughs> and in this case, you have to get very deliberately into the regulation beforehand. So how, how's that going? <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think, 
you know, this is a this is a potential wake up call for for truck drivers. And I, I talk to I try to talk to drivers. Um, I'm working on a, a project on last mile delivery right now as well. But I try to talk to drivers, you know, at least once a week. I'm talking to a driver. Sometimes I'm doing, you know, two or three interviews a week. Um, and there's been a real sobering up with the, the Trump administration's approach among drivers who at first got really excited, you know, because the president had a truck at the White House. I think they might have done that twice, right? Yeah. And claimed to be a, you know, a friend of the truck driver, you know. Um, and there have been a number of uh, regulations now toward the end of the administration that have made it very clear that um, that the industry has largely been pulling, you know, the levers on on what they want and has been completely in control of of policy in recent years. This this includes opening up driving to drivers who are less than 21, 21 years old, like so teenagers driving these big trucks, which is which is just you know crazy, and other sorts of of rules that haven't been particularly good for for truckers. But on the automation front, it's essentially been one of, of complete avoidance of the issue. So um, Susan Collins and Jack Reed, uh, I believe it was back in 2016 or early 2017, called, you know, in the Senate, had hearings, called for research uh, on, the, on the labor impacts of self-driving trucks. That research process started, uh, you know, a number of agencies were involved in it. So National Science Foundation, um, GAO, the Government Accountability Office, Department of Labor, Department of Transportation, they produced a report in the summer of 2019 that went to um, the Office of Management and Budget in the White House and promptly died there. <laughs> um, and so, you know, this research on the potential impacts of, uh, of self-driving technology has been there for, you know, a year, a, a year and a half now, has not been been released. Meanwhile, we're making grants to look at the, you know, how to speed up the adoption of self-driving, how to integrate it into existing fleets, um, how to meet the safety, how to achieve the safety benefits of it, all while we really don't want to even discuss uh, or acknowledge the potential labor impacts. And as a sociologist who studied the industry, this is this is how you do policy like this, right? Um, to to the interests of you know, only the special interests, right? It's about the questions that you ask. So if, if our government policy continually asks the question, what are the safety benefits and how do we achieve them? And that's the only question that it asks, we're going to ignore all the rest of these, these issues. Mm -hmm. And that's what you want when you get to Congress. So you have, oh, here, here's, you know, $2 billion in safety benefits. And then here's a whole bunch of other stuff that we really don't know the, you know, the value of, and you know, it's sort of a he said, she said sort of debate about you know whether or not it's going to hurt workers, help workers, or what any of that means. Um, so leave it unaddressed, essentially. So some of the some of the things that we can do are one is talk about you know get our elected representatives at the federal level to talk about this issue. Another thing is for truckers themselves to talk about the issue. And kind of and mobilize. Is there anything that like towns can do or, or communities should be doing to to think this through? I mean, it seems like we, you know, you you've described the job as essentially sweatshops on wheels. If we, you know, if we sort of go in that direction, and um, that's a pretty sad ending for a technology that has so much promise to actually create good jobs and, and other good stuff. Um, but we're not gonna get that unless we push for it. So is there room at the local level for pushing or where's the, 
where where are most of the levers? Yeah, so I, I mean, I think the the local and the state level is absolutely critical, and I, I think we should we're going to need um, robust federal policy, but that policy needs to be informed by state level processes that you know evaluate for you know localities and for the state. You know, what are the interests to the businesses in our area, right, or in our state? Um, the workers in our state. What about all of the, you know, states that are, you know, the equivalent of drive-through, you know, fly flyover states, but they're drive-through states, right? Um, some of which derive significant benefits from the trucking industry because they, you know, uh, sell fuel or have diners and service areas. Um, some of them not so much. If you look like at a place like Chicago, right, which is a major freight hub, there's lots of freight that that generates business for Chicago and, and, and Illinois and surrounding areas, but there's lots of freight that simply just moves through and clogs up its congestion, you know, its, its roadways and its air quality, mm. right? Um, and so you're going to have different impacts. Now, if we were to see, you know, a, a doubling of this long haul truck traffic, right, um, but it's not stopping, right, it's going to really shift, you know, the costs and benefits of the trucking industry. But it's going to be even more transformative of, of supply chains more broadly. So if you look at a Walmart store right now, or Walmart distribution network, the way that it works is essentially every store is within a day's drive out and back for a human-driven truck. And in the center of that network is a distribution explains network. Why the why the stores are where they are, yes. Yeah. And so now the same thing with like a chicken production, you know, facility and things like that, right? They're all based on the limitations of a human-driven truck. Well, now if a, if a truck that's going to bring that chicken or that Walmart load out to a store can go twice as far or even further, right? You're going to change where those warehousing, you know, areas are, mm -hmm. where the distribution nodes are. So, you know, you're going to, you're going to really transform the supply chain. Um, and so these are these are things that we're going to need to think about, and and I think to have effective sort of stakeholder engagement, right, for communities, for state departments of transportation, for workers and others, we're going to have to have a broad, comprehensive conversation about what do we want freight movement to look like, as opposed to some other areas of technology affecting work. We have more levers here because this the the workplace of truckers is the public roadway, and mm -hmm. so we have lots of skin in the game. And we also have lots of levers that we have the authority to pull about, you know, when we want trucks to move, where we want them to move, how many, what we want them to pay for, you know, et cetera. Um, in a way that sometimes automation in a private factory or something like that, we don't we don't have those levers. Right. And even even with the taxi or the sort of the Uber situation, we don't have quite as many levers as we have with um, with with robot trucking. That's a really an interesting sort of uh, place to end on is that in a weird way it's actually kind of hopeful even if you even if you look at this last 40 years of regulatory history and the history of the technology in the cab you actually have uh, there's quite a lot policy-wise that could be done and the technology is not deterministic I have one last question for you which is you know why do we always insist that the technology makes the decisions and it's not us <laughs> I don't know. Maybe we have just so much faith in it because we, we're so dependent on technology everywhere in our lives. And we, you know, it's kind of magic. So we take it for granted that there must be, you know, um, some logic behind it that makes more sense of it than we can make of it. Uh -huh. Well, <clears throat> yeah, or maybe that's the story we tell ourselves. I'm not sure. But anyway, I hope that we can end this by questioning 
more of the technology and, and, and not accepting things as inevitable. So thank you very much, Steve. I really appreciate your, your conversation. This has been wonderful. Um, I'm gonna give you just some, we have to close here uh, and thank you again. Um, and to everyone watching, thank you for joining us. Please visit Zocalo's website, zocalopublicsquare.org to read a summary of this conversation as well as many other essays and articles um, and to hear and learn about other conversations like this one. Um, you can also visit Issues in Science and Technology. Our website is issues.org. Um, for insightful writing and conversations on science and science policy, um, including Steve's recent article, which is a really wonderful portrait of uh, how robot trucking doesn't have to be the way it seems to be going. Thank you again and have a lovely afternoon. Take care.